us. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans 12 in just a little bit. We've got some other scripture I want to show you on the screen before we get into Romans 12, but it all ties together, I think, uh, I hope ties together nicely. And I think, uh, I really believe, I don't, I, often I've, I'm, I'm very enthused about what I have to preach about or what I feel like God led me to preach about. Um, and sometimes I'm sure my enthusiasm might just be because I'm a preacher and I love the Bible, and of course you do too, but sometimes I can take things in directions that uh, uh, maybe just be for my own uh, joy and enthusiasm. But I, I really believe that today's message um, can be, can truly make a difference in your life. Um, I, I sh- not that I don't preface every message like that, but I really believe that if God had one thing to say, and I know this is big for me to say this, but if God could say one thing to you right now today um, as, as someone who represents him on earth, maybe you don't really think about your life like that, but I think that's how it works. As someone who is made by God and sent here for God's purpose and for something glorious, I think today's message might be one of the most important uh, topics and, and conversations that God wants to have with you. So hopefully I can get out of the way and let him do that. Um, but uh, I really believe that we're going to have a good time uh, this morning. Uh, you know, I try to incorporate and I try to intersect our sermons with the larger conversations that are going on uh, and around us and going on with us in culture and society. Jesus did this. He was constantly uh, borrowing from his culture uh, to make God's word for his audience the most relevant it could be. He told parables about, you know, farming and parables about building and, and parables about fishing. And those were things that people, you know, were very familiar with. Uh, the, the, the prophets did this in the Old Testament. Uh, that's why sometimes we read them and they're very obscure because we don't get the connections or we don't get the references because we weren't, you know, we're not ancient Israel, uh, and the, the apostles in the New Testament did this as well. So he would try to take something they knew and launch from that into something much more important uh, that they should know and that, they, that God wanted to tell them. So again, I try to do this, but of course, you know, I, I, it's got to come from a place of genuine and, and authenticity, um, which is why sometimes I talk about things that maybe don't necessarily land with you, uh, referencing to last week's introduction maybe. Um, but uh, I say all this to either disappoint you or delight you. I don't have any Super Bowl uh, reference or story to tell. Um, as you probably can expect, I'm not the most athletic or the most uh, the biggest football person. Um, you know, so I know it's Super Bowl Sunday. Probably my 10th time that I preached on uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Um, this might be the first time I've ever even referenced it. So I- I'm sorry. You know, I-, I, do, I do love NASCAR. That's back next week. So I'll try to work up something good and not make people too bored. But... Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Um, when, I, when I first started preaching, I, I made, apparently, apparently I made too many references to racing that some folks in the church uh, confronted me and told me I needed to start talking about things that, uh, talking about more serious stuff that people could relate to, like why the president was bad and why people shouldn't read Twilight. That really happened. Now, you don't even remember Twilight. That's been so long ago. No one remembers Twilight. And, of course, this just in, the government's still a mess, but God's in control, so we're in, we're in good hands. Um, but uh, so people, people told me that I need to talk about serious stuff, so they, t- they came up with that, with that. I'm like, really? Um, I'll talk about what I believe the Lord uh, wants us to talk about. But uh, no, no bad or forced references here. But, but, of course, if there's something serious the church ought to respond to, I'm always going to take my responsibility and hold up God's word and let it do the talking. Uh, but when it comes to any lesser thing in our culture, you know, I'm not going to try to force it or feign uh, enthusiasm. You know, I, I'm just going to be me for the glory of God. So no Super Bowl talk. Maybe one day I'll, I'll come up here and we'll turn the whole stage into an end zone and I'll preach in a jersey. Um, 
put the hip in discipleship, but uh, I, I do have a jersey. It's a hockey jersey, but uh, that's a story for another day. But, um, you know, again, I'm not knocking if you love football. I, I, I'm glad if you love it, then and if you're enthusiastic about football, that's great. That, that gives you an opportunity to relate to people that I'll never be able to relate to. That'll be, give you an opportunity to be used by God in a, in a culture that I'll never have an inroad at, especially after this introduction. People really won't take me serious. Um, but, but he'll be able to use you in ways that he'll never be able to use me. You know, we, we beat up and talk bad about the world a lot. And I know it's broken and sinful and all that stuff. And this past year has made us feel even less good about it. But there's something really brilliant. And maybe you don't agree with me on this, but I think I might can convince you. There's something really brilliant and something really beautiful about this world that we don't talk about enough. How there can be, and honestly, there are vast differences in every one of us. And yet, in spite of our vast differences, we all can know and follow God from our respective and unique walks of life. That God doesn't require you to be a certain kind of person with certain interests and certain personalities to be a follower of his. He invites you and delights in you like you are. There are some roads, of course, that God will redeem you from, but there are others whereupon he leaves you and uses you. God's redemption completely removes us from some roads, sinful roads, but other roads we're called to remain on and recruited to work there for the glory of God. And, And that's what I think doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to how this world works and when it comes to how diverse and how unique every one of you are because God uses us in those places. Maybe he even put us in those places. Maybe he even gave us those interests and made us that person. You think? Every one of us are created in God's image, yet we don't all look the same. We don't all walk the same. We don't all have the same stories, and that's okay. I think for a long time the church has preached that God tolerates us, but no, God made us and puts those desires and made us as unique as we are for something that I don't think we talk about and I don't think that we delight in enough. Psalm 139 is a passage that we all learned as kids, but just listen to these words. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb as in God was so hands-on and that everything that David became, the person he became, with the interest that he had, his musical talents and his interest in sheep and all the things that we know about King David that makes him King David and not some other king and not some other person, that makes him a man that we call a one after God's own heart, a unique person. David says, God, you formed me and you knitted me together so that I would be me. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul, as in your soul, our souls, are the work of God. Fearfully, wonderfully, uniquely made. David says, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths or by or with the depths of the earth, as in all the things in the world that make the world so different and have, there's so many things that can be pulled from to describe each and every one of us, God used those things to make David just like he used those things to make you. And yet we all turn out a little differently, don't we? It would do us well to read this and let this wash over us and really sober us up every day. We are all formed in God's image, designed, woven, commissioned by and for the glory of God. But, but I want to just try to break this down so that we don't miss something that I think is really profound and really marvelous about God and about us. The thing we forget about God is that God is infinite. 
He cannot be contained nor described. He cannot be shrunk down or reduced. Our tendency in our nature is to try to do this with God, isn't it? You know, I, we've got textbooks that try to say everything there is to say about God, and that's really a joke, isn't it? I, I've got this cube in my, at home in my office that's, you know, so many sides, and it has different things about God. But do, do you really think that that cube or those books can really contain all there is to say and know about God? Psalm 147 tells us, Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. As in, we will never even be, begin to get close to understand in everything there is to know about God in terms of what makes him God and the beautiful design that, that, that we just get to see a glimpse of. If, there is, if this is reflected in any way, you know, we point to nature, the heavens declare the handiworks, and they do. We point to stars, we point to animals, we point to all the things that we observe, but none of those things are made in his image, are they? They speak and they represent and they shine his glory, but they don't, they don't, they don't bear his image. But if those things are so varied, then that explains humanity a little better, doesn't it? Because we are made in his image, aren't we? We bear God's image, his infinite, unsearchable, everlasting, and indescribable image. But we are not all the same. What if that's the reason? What if that's why we're so different? So very unique. Our looks, our interests, our personalities, they all just capture one of the billions of trillions of traits and points of interest about our God. Now, of course, God is holy and our sin has marred our image, but as far as our unique qualities and personalities and gifts, all of those, all of us still bear God's thumbprint, and yet we're so different, and that just shows that there is so much that describes our God that cannot be contained in all the infinitely unique people that could be made in his image. It's still just a drop in the bucket of the full picture. Of course, we mentioned sin has made an effort to mar the image of God, to turn humanity in the wrong way. You know, sin has sought to take who God made us to be and cause harm instead of good. God made us to do good, to bring glory, and sin tries to do the opposite. It's a pretty simple way to describe what sin is all about, to cause harm, that we wouldn't do good, that we would do bad. Sin seeks to corrupt and deform, as in break down, what God has formed for his glory. So we talk about being formed in God's image, and sin shows up and tries to deform or corrupt that image, and it's done a pretty good job at that. But nonetheless, God's semblance and gifts remain. We are redeemable. We are repurposable. We can discover why God plants these seeds within us. And that's the whole point of this conversation today. We can realize who we were formed to be in spite of sin's deformation through God's transformation. Something I've always been a big proponent from, a opponent of from the pulpit is individuality, authenticity. Maybe it's because of what I went through my early years as a, as a preacher, let alone as a Christian, because I've learned and I believe and the Bible teaches and I will always preach so that you all hear, God made you for his glory, separate from me. He made you separate from somebody else because he wants to use you and he loves you for his glory. Yes, we can learn from each other. Yes, there are some things that we all should do and some things that we all should not do, but we are all different, and that's okay. More than okay, that's intended. 
One of the major misconceptions about Christian salvation is that salvation isn't about replacing you. It's about transforming you. Salvation isn't about draining you of individuality and taking what makes you out of you. It's about taking that sin that's trying to hold you back and transform you by the grace that is able to get you where you were always meant to be. It's about excising the sin that's ruining you and giving you grace that can transform you. You know, not only does the church not promote individuality enough, but it doesn't preach transformation enough. I've learned through preaching and only become more passionate as I've met so many of you that are all different, and that's what makes it so great and what makes this so very true. No, we're not here to create a bunch of copies. We're not here. uh, We are here to address the mess that we've all made, clearly, and we all continue to make. And we will make it clear that in and of ourselves, we're no match for sin, but we need God's grace to ever reach our true potential. You, You see, your unique interests, your gifts, your personalities, they're not accidents. They're providential. God intends on using you for his glory, for some kingdom good. They aren't for our consumption, but they are for his redemption and can be used for his glory. And and, and really, exhibit A is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is known from being saved out of a lawless and dead-end lifestyle. But on one occasion, he gives a testimony, or he tells his testimony, that uh, suggests that salvation was more than just washing the bad away. It was about waking the best up. And do you hear that? Salvation wasn't just about getting the bad away, but it was about waking who he was always meant to be up, whose sin had taken taken in the wrong direction, but there was a semblance of who he was always meant to be there the whole time. Listen to how Paul tells his story. I thank him, or I thank God, who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Now, that's a very strange way of describing being saved, isn't it? Appoint me to his service. So what is Paul saying? That there was some part of my former life that God was pleased with. No, he was not pleased with what I was doing. But he was pleased with the fact that I was trying to live up with who, to who he made me to be. I was just going about it the wrong way. So much in the wrong way that I was hurting the church. I was actually persecuting the church. But yet I was still, I didn't realize it, but I had been made. I was created to be a very specific type of person. And I was going about it the wrong way. So what does Paul tell us here? That underneath what sin had marred and tried to deform and tried to mess up was this calling on his life, was this individual he was made to be. Listen to how he tells us. Formerly I was a blast from a persecutor, insolent opponent. Can't get much worse than that. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That I was doing this contrary to what God intended me to do. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, for me, for me, as in God is for you. He does not intervene in your life to make it worse. He intervenes to make it better because he has your best in mind. He is for you with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ as in was made clear to us through Jesus. These, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I am the chief of sinners. Paul is not trying to underscore his sin. It's clearly the damage he was doing. But listen to how he wraps this up. But I receive mercy for this reason as the foremost. This is the reason why I was saved, that Christ might display his perfect patience over and through me as an example to everybody else. As in what God did through Paul was an example of what he can do through us. Why did God choose Paul? 
Why did he tell Ananias that Paul was the chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? Why did he not use somebody that he already had? Why did he say at Antioch, I need Barnabas and Paul? Because underneath all of Paul's rottenness were God-given gifts that the church needed. Now hear me out. God didn't have to pick Paul. There were plenty of people already on the bench. When God was looking to take the church from local to international, he recruited someone, someone who was a proven and capable leader who could organize and mobilize a movement. Paul had been using those gifts for evil, but God intended them for his use all along. Don't you see the point there? He was transformed. From sin's bondage, he was free. From hatred and jealousy and pride, he was able to realize who he was meant to be. And at Antioch, when they were trying to figure out where to go next, Paul pulled the map down to the world and said, I'll take it all. Because I know what God's made me to be. I know who God's made me to be. And I was doing it the wrong way. But now, by the grace of God, I'll do it the right way. With gifts of leadership and organization and communication, Paul took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Once an opponent, he became the greatest proponent. The Apostle Paul became the biggest advocate for Christianity the world's ever seen, maybe uh, there ever has been. He preached and believed and knew that only through Christ can we realize our true created purpose. And maybe you push back there and say, well, why only through Jesus? Because Jesus was and is God in flesh. He came to not just point to our problems. He came and made our problems his problems. That's why you should trust Jesus beyond any other religion. Because what did Jesus do? He didn't just say, hey, look at your problems, fix them. He said, hey, give me those problems. I'll fix them. And I'll fix you. Isn't it remarkable? Unlike any other religious leader, Jesus didn't preach down at people. He reached down for people. He didn't demand people change and come back next week. He promised and provided a way for you to change and stuck around while you struggled through it. Paul would preach around the world and write to the places and people he made connections, this gospel. And the book of Romans is perhaps his finest message and his greatest message. As it details the Christian faith from front to back, our brokenness, God's redemption plan set in motion in the very beginning from Adam to Abraham to Moses through the law and all the Old Testament teaches, it all comes to Jesus. Jesus died for our sin. He forgives our sin and delivers us from our sin. And Romans kind of comes to this place where it, uh, it goes into great detail the grace of God that makes us new creatures, the grace of God that can take us from just being believers uh, to truly being disciples and world changers. Romans goes on to tell us about God's grace, how it displaces our sin and makes us new. And the last few chapters of Romans are all about transformation. Romans 12 is one of the most important passages of Scripture you could ever read. As a believer, it should be one of the top five Scriptures that you commit to read and memorize if you can. For even for a non-believer, I think it'd be eye-opening because it reveals the contrast to a life dominated by sin and a life led by Jesus. It may be the most important passage for a Christian when it comes to living out our faith because it reminds us the forces that are working against us and how God's Spirit can guide us in a better way. This passage does some incredible things. It balances respecting our individuality, God-given individuality, with giving us this universal template that will all make us the better or the best version of ourselves. 
These are universal truths that all come under this amazing heading that is Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And I I lead up to this because I don't think I could possibly do justice how important these two verses are. Speaking to every one of you individually, every one of you as unique creatures of God, but also to all of us as members of the body of Christ. Listen to how Paul, listen to, in very strong language, he, he says, I beseech you, or I beg you, or if you only listen to one thing I've got to say, he wrote a lot, but he's saying, Christians, I beg you, brothers and sisters, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, based on all that God has done for you, which we've just talked about, he made you, he redeemed you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, that as presenting ourselves this way, that's what pleases God. That is our reasonable service. If you want to know where to start in your service to God, where do you begin? You begin right here. As a living sacrifice, you say, what does that mean? Thankfully, he explains it. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And the rest of the chapter is about how is the proving of it or the detailing of what God's will is. We'll get to that. But notice he makes it very clear that the world wants to conform us to a certain image, but God wants to transform us to the image we were always made to bear and always made to wear and always the person we were always made to be. So I want to talk about this. Conforming versus transforming. Now, I mentioned there'd be no Super Bowl talk, but almost as popular as the ball game are the commercials, right? The advertisements are why people actually show up. You've got to figure out what you need to boycott and what you need to buy. Uh, that, that's not funny. Uh, but, but now this year, I, there, I read there wouldn't be as many uh, companies doing ads because they could just save money and post them online and people would still watch them and share them. But if you turn on the radio tomorrow, if you go online, social channels, you'll see all conversations, no matter how good the gamer was or not, uh, you'll find plenty to talk about uh, regarding which ads were the best and the most effective and you'll see them shared and people will say, I like that one and I didn't like that one. Um, largely considered this might this this is I, I just kind of took a uh, went online and did some research but um I wasn't live when it aired but largely considered one of the best and most effective Super Bowl commercials of all time was one back in 1984 that introduced the Macintosh uh the Macintosh Apple computer to the world um Apple did an ad that was spoofing the book 1984 uh, the book about government control and information being you know held back and everybody believing what someone told them to believe uh the the commercial spoofs that book and that society by promising that through their vision of the future with one of their devices uh, in your home or in today's world everywhere um, you could have information at your fingertips and you could get access to anything that you wanted now whether or not they lived up to lived up to that that's what they were selling the world and it worked because a lot of people thought wow that's a very powerful you know offering that you're showing the world now the irony of the commercial is that apple was trying to sell the world on a product they weren't trying to lead a revolution they were trying to sell you something um, they were hoping to convince everyone that they needed this device and all the other devices that they would make, and they've made a lot. Uh, but in an ad uh, about not doing what the world told you to do, they were trying to brainwash you to do what they told you to do, which is how ads work, right? Um, of course, they were in on the bit. That's what makes it powerful. Effective advertisements, uh, the goals of the companies are to make us think they're not selling us something, that they're doing us a favor, and they're opening our eyes to what we've always needed. That's the goal of every commercial. The best commercials are subtle, like the Apple one, making you think they're sending one message when really they're sending the opposite message. 
You know, I did a little marketing and advertisement, uh, you know, studies when I was younger. It's about making you feel so good about a product that when you see it, you remember those good thoughts. And thus, you're more likely to buy it. It's like you're doing yourself a service, and you don't even think about the fact that you're really doing this company a service. You know, I always love Coca-Cola commercials uh, where they show people from all around the world enjoying a Coke, and they're saying it in their own languages, and they're drinking it with the bottles with the different you know, lettering on there. But one of the most universal recognizable symbols in the world is the Coca-Cola logo, can or bottle. Their message is that everybody knows and loves Coca-Cola, and you should join in on the fun. Commercials are powerful aren't they? They had an entire generation talking like lizards for a few years. People still ask, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Um, Everybody chimes in that Wendy's burgers are actually made of beef, right? All this is because of commercials have got into our minds and and changed the way we see products. All this stuff stuck in our minds because of powerful, influential advertisements. But their goal wasn't just to get you talking about their ads. Their goal was to get you to buy their product. The goal of every ad, plain and simple, is to convince the most amount of people, the most amount of people to do the same thing, which is really hard. Everybody's so different, yet the goal of the commercial is to convince all the diverse people that are watching to want to do the same thing. And that's why every commercial shows people that look very different than each other doing something that is very similar because it's talking about how their product brings everybody together to conform us to a very certain image. Commercials are reviewed and refined and appealed to, to, the, to appeal to the largest audience. They're focus-tested until they feel like they've cast the widest, biggest net to reach the most eyes. That leads me to this. Everything in front of your eyes and my eyes and our eyes every single day is one big commercial from the world. It's all meant to funnel us down a single path that we follow the same lead. We're told that our pathway is unique, but really it's just the same as everyone else beside us. We're all being funneled down the same hallway. We're sold a pathway of hedonism and selfishness and short-sightedness and brevity characterized by fear and pleasure and control. And all along, our individuality and our potential is drained out and our true ability to be ourselves is taken away. The world plays on our insecurities, our inabilities, our deficiencies, our shortcomings, our advices, our anxieties. Its pathways, particularly the attitudes that encourage us uh, uh, and it wants us to keep, all are about tying us down and holding us back. The Apostle Paul was controlled by hatred and jealousy and fear. And remember, he wasn't controlled by secular society. He was doing this by religion. And because of religion, religion doesn't want to set us free. It wants to see us combative and aggressive toward each other because it doesn't offer us true salvation. This world does not offer us true salvation. It does not offer us a way back to God, the one that made us and the one that knows who we were meant to be and can make us who we were meant to be. Only Jesus Christ in a relationship with him can do that. He offers us a transformative life that we be made into our true self. The world wants to conform you to, religion wants to, wants to conform you to their image, but Jesus wants to transform you for. For what? For his glory, for his kingdom, for your own good, for the better of the world around you. He wants to give you genuine change, genuine to make a genuine impact in the world that only you can make because there's only one you. Our minds are so bogged down by the way the world does things, aren't they? 
the way our flesh naturally responds to things, we need Jesus' transformation power if we're ever going to experience God's best for us. Notice the scripture is very clear. We're called to be living sacrifices. But notice the exchange is not, is not that we lose, it's that we gain. Or that's what Paul tells us. Surrendering to God may indeed cost us. It may cost you, it may change you, it may lift, make you leave some things behind. But we will always gain more than we will lose. God makes a promise to us here that we will prove in our life that the life we live as genuine sacrifices to God will prove to be good and acceptable and perfect in God's eyes. That we will be who we were made to be. So you can trust God. It comes down to this though. Are you satisfied with a life apart from God's will? Are you satisfied being dominated by this world, being less of yourself with less joy and less peace? Are you satisfied being conformed to this world? Are you happy being conformed and being controlled by institutions and elements of this world? Or does your heart want better? Does your mind want better than surrendering to sin again and again? Our hearts and minds get heavy when, the world, when we follow the world, but there is relief in and through Jesus. The sacrifice, this surrender, believe it or not, it begins with how we see ourselves alongside everybody else which this is the part that might get bumpy, but I promise you it ends at a good place. Part of our frustration when we come to God is that we're not the only one in line. Isn't it true? That when we come to God saying, God, I wish this would be the way it would be, we have a lot of other people around us, don't we? Because God's got a lot more kids than just me and just you. We see other people as obstacles, and that's why we resort to the world's playbook, but we've got to change how we see people around us. Look at verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you. So notice how he instantly makes this about everybody else. Everyone among you, not to think himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. So there's the uniqueness of who we are, but we need to remember that everybody else is unique in who they are. And we all fit into this big family somehow together. The scripture identifies that much of our conflict in the world pertains to how we relate to people. If it wasn't for those pesky people, we'd be okay, wouldn't it? <laughs> how we think about them, treat them, interact, or avoid them. But notice that verse 3 immediately connects surrendering to God with being humble before others. Now, how in the world does Paul use that? What kind of logic is that? I mean, surrender to God, verse 1 and 2, but now verse 3 through 5 is talking about how I relate to other people. I mean, being humble before others, what does that have to do with surrendering to God? Everything. What's that got to do with God's glory? You know, this world is, uh, this world is attacking God's glory every day. Attacking His image of which we are made in. And what's the best way to attack the image of God than to cause people who bear his image to attack each other? Here's where I think, this is, here's where this is going, and, and you may not like the direction Paul takes us, but I think this is necessary to consider if we want our lives transformed. Because he's trying to get us to consider everybody else, and, and this is, and I know I'm taking a big leap here, but this is where I think God wants us to go with this. Everyone may not be a Christian, but everyone can be. 
And Jesus died so that everyone would be. We agree on that? Obviously, everyone's not. I mean, amen to that. I can tell you a lot of people who aren't. But don't stop there. But everyone can be. Well, yeah, I guess everyone can be. It doesn't mean they will be. Be quiet, Justin. Jesus died so that everyone would be. Well, I guess he did. So why not treat them all like they are ahead of time? What do we lose if we choose to do that? Isn't that something a child of God would and should want to do anyway? Isn't it much more likely that someone become one of us if we treat them like we want to be one with them? Hello? Isn't it much more likely that someone might want to be one of us if we treat them, and I don't mean you know, agree with their sin or, or, or encourage their sin, but we agree with the soul that we both have, made in God's image. They're already more like us than they're unlike us because they're one of God's own creations. We often hear Romans referenced because of the Romans road. You've heard that before. Romans road, the first eight chapters are, talk, are, are shown as a way to become a Christian. But I think chapter 12 offers us a different Romans road. I'll call it the Romans road back. Back to what it means to be, un, to be godly in an ungodly world. I think we've gotten off track in our world. I think it's easy to do so, particularly in how we stand out as the body of Christ, how we interact with people or avoid people. This is the road back to truly measuring up to our God-given purpose and transformative power of Christ. It deals specifically with how we allow God to use us, how we interface and intersect with other people. If you want to be transformed by Christ, the best version of who you were made to be, the person God made you, if you want to glorify God in a way that only someone who is you can do, you're going to have to go through Romans 12 to do it. This is the transformation text. It considers every bump in the road, every excuse in the book, every point of discouragement and dejection, every trap that surrenders to sin instead of God. It confronts every reason we've ever given or anyone ever would give when they choose conformity over transformation. It says, no, 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 you had a way to stay faithful to God. You didn't have to bow out. You didn't have to do, the way, do it the way the world told you to do it. You didn't have to do it the way religion enabled you to do it. There was a Christ-like better option. Look down at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. But underline, let love. Your translation may be different, but New King James says without hypocrisy. That tells us what that word means pretty much. It means let our love be genuine. You know what is required for your love to be genuine? For you to be genuine. For you to be you. Not faking it, but being made into who God wants you to be. And how do you do that? by being who God made you, and by seeing everyone else as being made by God as well. Understanding that God has a purpose for you that is only from Him and that everyone else does too. And when you begin to see other people like you as children of God, as creatures of God, you'll understand how precious the territory around you both is and how important your actions to each other are. 
Take no part in the things that God rejects. Don't hate or harm anyone. Do your part and reflect Him. Love everyone. Now, the idea here is to actively seek the good of everyone you're around. Again, people you're around because of your unique pathway in life. People that you'll interact with that I never will. You say, well, how does that relate to sin? Why does it always have to be about love? I'll make that very clear and easy to you. Because love answers the sin problem better than any other, any other way I can answer it. Love won't let me sin against you, will it? Love won't let me sin with you, will it? Love won't let me watch sin ruin you, will it? Love won't let me sin against you. And it won't let me sin with you even if you are ready to go. It won't let me. Even if it's a team of people saying, yeah, let's do this, it's right, it, who cares? Love won't let me. And love won't let me sit back and watch you go down a very bad road without doing everything I can to rescue you. Love isn't passive, love is transformative. See, we dismiss this as true transformation because we've, we've, you know, we've never learned to love people genuinely. We're too selfish, we're too busy pointing the finger, vilifying people to truly love them. But verse 10 is very, very clear. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, as he's making it very clear, treating them like they're your family, and honor giving preference to one another or treating someone else better than you treat yourself. Outdoing each other with honor. Transformation is bold and radical. It's not understated, not muted, not implied. The verbs here are be and give, as in intentionally love with words and actions from one person to another. We roll, eye, we roll our eyes at the last part of verse 10. Outdo each other with honor. I mean, what is this? Some 50s sitcom? We think that's excessive. We think it's silly. Men think it's not masculine. Women, maybe you think it's just for show. No one is that spiritual. But this shows us how much we've accepted conformity, how much we've embraced conformity. It shows how radical transformation actually is, doesn't it? We live in a world that wants to outdo the other in terms of being right. We talk about winning and getting ahead and getting even. We outdo each other by dunking on them and rubbing it in their face when we're right and they're wrong, don't we? Ask yourself, is that living by the transformative power of Jesus? I don't think so. Verse 14 through 21, and we're done. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who re weep, as in walk in their shoes once in a while. Be of the same mind toward another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate yourself with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Well, if I didn't have an opinion, what would I have? I might have love, that's what. Remind me to preach on that sometimes. Repay no evil, no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, because that's all you can control ultimately. Live peaceably with all people, all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, therefore feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. As in, if you actually do the good right thing, you might end up making a difference in the heart 
All this is summarized so powerfully, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My goodness, what if we just did one of those six verses, let alone all of them? We might just love the world. We might just change somebody's life. Our own lives might be changed. Don't fight fire with fire. Water has been proven to work better, hasn't it? This is the definition and depiction of the transformed life. The world teaches us how to be right and make points, but Jesus teaches us how to be righteous and make a difference. Which one do you want? Don't you want to make a difference? Don't you want to be the difference? Don't you want to rise above the finger pointing and judgment and us versus them atmosphere we seem to be stuck in? The only available solution is through Jesus Christ, through his people being transformed by his power. Yes, he cares deeply about you living right before him, but he cares the most about you being right with others. And you know why? Because the former is the LCD. The former is, is obvious. The former is the baseline. The latter is how the world has changed. Being right in a righteous way. If you think about it, the Romans road is just a glimpse at the road that Jesus took in his life. He lived a perfect life before God. But the difference was made when he died a death for all of us on the cross. A living sacrifice reconciling you and me to him. Without him, we would have no hope. We would be lost and condemned. But because of him, we can be saved. And because of salvation, we can be transformed. So that we might replay his life through ours. So that we might point to him with our life. And when all of us do this, we make the image of God much more bold and much more realized because we do this together. We show much more of a fully realized picture. Church, this is how we change the world. This is how we change lives one person at a time. This is what you were made for and this is who you were made to be. Transformed by the power of Christ. He lives for you, as in he, he, he is before God. He is perfect when we're not perfect. He lives for you. He lives in you, as in when sin tries to take you down one road, he takes you down the right road. He lives for you, he lives in you, and he lives through you, as in when we deal with each other, he shows us the right way, the loving way, and reminds us of the bigger picture. Does this describe your relationship with Jesus? Are you trusting in him for salvation? Are you leaning on him to overcome sin? Are you living through him? Are you being transformed by him to make a difference in the world that is desperately in need of him? Just remember, everybody you're ever eyeball to eyeball with is made in the very same image of God you're made in. And the only way we're gonna make a difference is letting the transformation power of Christ change us into who we were made to be. And if we love them like God has loved us, that's how we can change the world. That is the Romans road back to making a difference in a world that seems to be spinning its wheels. Don't you want what's best? Only you can be you for the glory of God. 
Does this describe your walk with God? If you've never accepted Christ, that's where you start. He'll stand before God for you, he'll defend you, and he'll save you forever. But beyond that, he gives you victory over sin, and he gives you love for everybody else. And that's how we can be transformed. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you, and we're thankful for this reminder of how we can be saved and transformed for your glory. Lord, we live in a world that is just fighting each other and just beating each other up and trying to take the last swing and have the last word. God, would that you would give us the church, the boldness and the transformation power to stand up and stand out and make a difference in our world. Lord, that you might would make us a light into a world that is so dark. You might would use us to love people genuinely like you have loved us and respect their calling and their place in your kingdom as you have given us one. Lord, I pray that you might would show us where we fit into this. Show us if we have been truly transformed. And Lord, give us that opportunity to get back on the right road and follow you and magnify you with our lives. Lord, we thank you and ask you to lead, guide, and direct us and use this invitation to speak to hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.